Welcome back to another podcast from Paris 21, Data for the People. I'm very excited to have a good colleague and friend of mine together with me today, Katinka Weinberger. Hello, Katinka, who joins us from Bangkok. Hi, good morning, Johannes, and thank you so much for this invitation. Yeah, I'm here in Bangkok with the Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific. Katinka is the Chief of the Environment and Development Policy Section. And uh, Katinka, can you tell us a little bit more about your institution? ESCAP stands for the Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific. Uh, we are one of the five regional commissions of the UN Secretariat. Uh, we have 53 member states, so we cover all the way from Turkey into the Pacific. And the Economic and Social Commissions have a couple of functions. We firstly think tanks of the UN system. We produce integrated knowledge products. And these really regard um, a wide range of economic, social, and environmental issues. Uh, we have a very important role as convener of multi-stakeholder and intergovernmental platforms, uh, such as the Regional Forums on Sustainable Development, and we are providers of policy advocacy, technical cooperation, and capacity building services in areas related to the 2030 Agenda, which we all provide based on demand of member states. As I said before, we really address uh, and cover a wide range of different issues, thematic issues from economic, social, and environmental. But foremost, uh, we support implementation and follow-up and review of the 2030 Agenda, for which we've built a very integrated, a comprehensive and inclusive regional infrastructure, which has a couple of um, important features. One relates to uh, data. We've put in place a very sound foundation uh, for tracking and analyzing uh, progress. We publish on an annual basis our SDG progress report. And in addition to making the data available, including through our SDG gateway, we also work with our stakeholders to complement database assessments so that policymakers and other stakeholders really have the best information available and have the insights to understand what the data shows. Now we are coming nearly to the close of uh, 2020. And I assume, of course, that COVID has also shaken up significantly the program of work that you had in mind to work with countries on all these topics. How has COVID affected your work and how did you adjust to this new situation? We are uh, primarily a convener, a convener of various stakeholders. And given that travel is no longer possible, we have had to move all of our offers into virtual platforms. This means, for instance, that we hosted our Asia-Pacific Forum on Sustainable Development, which is our regional forum for dialogue and review related to the 2030 Agenda into a virtual platform. We've moved all of our capacity development activities into the virtual space. But perhaps what I should also mention is that much of our work over the past couple of months has focused on supporting countries in identifying opportunities to align COVID responses with the 2030 agenda, with opportunities 
to simultaneously push recovery related or recovery as a response to COVID with uh, policies that can also support implementation of the 2030 Agenda and the Paris Agreement. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Sustainable Development Goals for you in terms of progress, in terms of topics and issues, as well as maybe a different set according to different countries? The world globally is not on track to achieve the 2030 Agenda. We see the same happening here in Asia and the Pacific. And on top of that, due to COVID, we, we risk that any progress that has been made over the past couple of years is now being offset by the impacts of the COVID crisis, because clearly that is affecting the poorest and the most vulnerable. But if you look specifically at the Sustainable Development Goals, one area that the region as a whole has made relatively limited progress are those goals that address um, the environment and our ecological systems. So the Asia-Pacific region, while it hosts tremendous biodiversity, is at the same time experiencing really devastating environmental degradation. Much of our region is very, very vulnerable to climate change, and that presents an existential threat in some areas. You know, just think of, of the Pacific Islands. Maybe just to put this into some numbers, the Asia-Pacific region contributes to around one-third of world economic output. At the same time, it contributes to more than 50% of global greenhouse gas emissions and it uses more than 50% of resources needed for consumption worldwide. At the same time, we, we also suffer from these impacts, from the impacts of our economic activities, right? More than 90% of solid waste in Asia and the Pacific leaks into the environment, and more than 60% of all deaths from air pollution originate in this region. So what the COVID um, pandemic, I think, really is a wake-up call for is that we need to transition to a, a growth path that leads to a really healthy and green planet. This is one important part of the issues in still in Asia and specific poor people and increasing inequalities. And on the other hand, you, you just told us about the environmental concern, CO2 emissions, but also biodiversity loss and so on and so forth. Now, in terms of policy making, what do you suggest? Because the classical advice maybe of the last 15 years was more or less, yeah, you have to grow and uh, more growth will yield the resources to ensure that uh, you can integrate the environment. But what you seem to say, that seems to be more a profound shift. Could you maybe uh, elaborate a little bit more on this? Um, we recently um, did an assessment here in Asia and the Pacific where we looked at how quickly countries are accelerating across broad areas of the sustainable development goals. And the outcome of, of our analysis, um, I think, provides for some really important pointers and direction. So one very interesting finding was that higher income is actually not a cure-all solution. Yeah? So actually, no country in our region is moving fast in all of the transformative areas. And not all of the high income countries are moving fast. In fact, we had some low income and lower middle income countries that emerged as what we call sprinters in a couple of areas. 
and so did especially countries with special needs. So we have a number of small island developing countries in our region, which are really at the forefront of reducing emissions and, and contributing to a real change there. Now, what do these findings mean for our region and our countries? I think that's the real question, right? And how, how can all countries accelerate faster? And we came out with four clear messages. One is that there is a very strong need for a clear direction and a mission orientation. And this needs to be coupled with strong collaboration between governments and other stakeholders. So looking at what this means now in the context of COVID, I'd say that it is really critical for governments, for civil society and private stakeholders to focus their collaborative efforts on green, on inclusive and resilient recoveries, and of course, on the SDGs. And I would also say that an agenda, especially of transformation that leads towards resilience against future pandemics, needs to be taken up on several interlinked fronts. Secondly, environmental protection must be prioritized for green recovery, which should include improving the health of ecosystems, supporting decarbonization, uh, speeding up universal access to clean energy and resilience. And for these areas, building platforms for innovative solutions and ensuring that um, bold legislation can be pushed through is necessary for transformative change. I think it's important to point out that transformation will not happen without structural changes, deep structural changes, such as removing the barriers to, to basic health care and to social protection. We need really a fundamental realignment of our most basic systems with the values that underpin the SDGs. And for that, we need our governments to take very deliberate steps to change the underlying systems that create risks, that create the vulnerabilities and the inequalities that we see so that um, our region can really um, build back better. Thirdly, we've seen a lot of changes over the past couple of months, and we need to sustain that momentum of change amongst our people and our institutions. Again, the pandemic has really reinforced um, the need for very flexible and adaptive approaches to development and governance. And this will require more strategic innovation. It will require developing new skills and new methodologies and will require ultimately capacity building for our governments and other actors to accept that change is there and to work with the change that impacts all of us. I think what we learn from this experience is is the importance that policymakers in our region can plan for a really wide range of possible threats. You have been working on the topic of gender equality yourself in, in the past as a researcher, and you, you probably are very well aware of the, the supposed negative impact, in particular on, on women of the crisis, a little bit like an amplifier of already existing inequalities in the region. Is that something of concern that's currently debated? Um, yes, of course, this is an, an issue of concern, violence against women or the health impacts. But it is a concern also in the context of migration and informal employment. We have a very, very large informal economy in our region and pandemic has increased, especially the vulnerability of women because their participation in the informal economy 
is so high. But I think it is important also more broadly in view of the impact that the COVID pandemic will have on poverty in the Asian Pacific region. Even before COVID, we had 400 million people in Asia and the Pacific living in extreme poverty and 1.2 billion people living very close to poverty. And it is, being, it is expected that these numbers will increase by at least 50 million people for Asia and the Pacific. And again, here, the most vulnerable will be the most affected. And in many cases, um, these will be women and girls. Katinka, let me come to the to the end of uh, with the last question that I'm now asking actually east um, of my guests. How do you think, is there one or two things that make you optimistic looking forward to 2021? I think I can easily share two things with you. One is that we've seen so much citizen support over the past couple of months. People coming together, supporting each other, through various means, and I don't think that will go away after the pandemic has gone away. It has really brought communities back together again. We've seen communities innovating, being agile, really finding new ways to address the crisis, be it through innovations in education. And I think it will require our governments to really take decisive action. Our governments have the capacity, they can, and I'm sure they will. Well, on, on this positive note, I would like to end this podcast. Thank you so much, Katinka, for joining us, for taking the time. And we wish you and your family and your colleagues all the best. Thank you so much again for inviting me.